Well, please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. And you can find this on page 922 in the Pew Bibles. Page 922. Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 19 through 30 this morning. And as you come to these verses, and as we read them in just a moment, you'll notice they read kind of like a travelogue. They contain a lot of information about travel plans, which would have been important, no doubt, to the Philippian church. But do they really have any relevance to us? I'm going to make the case that yes, they do. Because as we take a closer look at these ancient first century travel plans, what we see is the mindset of Christ being lived out in the lives of his followers. If you're listening to this this morning, if maybe you've come here or, or you're tuning in uh, as a non-Christian, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I hope that what you'll see from this this message this morning is a glimpse of Jesus in the lives of Jesus' people in whom his Holy Spirit dwells. As you see true Christians, you should see something of their Christ. Now, no, I'm, I'm not claiming that you'll ever find a perfect Christian who never sins, a Christian who has no flaws. I am claiming, however, that as you examine the lives of the followers of Christ, as you read their history down through the centuries, you will see something glorious, something heavenly, something that can only be described as the love of Christ. You'll see lives of sacrifice joyfully poured out for others. You'll see astounding forgiveness. You'll see love that extends even to their enemies. Lives transformed from such vice to such virtue that can't be explained unless there really is a divine power at work in such people. That a, a divine power who has not merely forgiven them of their sins, but is actively transforming their lives. And so as you listen, I hope that you catch a glimpse of the practical effects of Christianity in the, in the faith, in, in the lives of these first century followers and those that they taught. I hope and pray that as you consider their lives, you catch a glimpse of their Savior, who is the reason why they were what they were. And so as you come to Philippians 2, we're going to start in verse 19. Verse 19 and I'm going to ask, if you're able this morning, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Philippians 2, starting in verse 19. The Apostle Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 
I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You may be seated. Well, back towards the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, this very chapter that we're in this morning, back in verse 5, Paul had written, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, this way of thinking, this mindset of Christ your Savior. And here in these verses that we've just read, we get a glimpse of what that mindset can look like as it is lived out in the lives of very flawed and and very human people like us who God had reclaimed, who God had redeemed by his own blood and in whom God had sent his Holy Spirit to dwell. And so I'm calling this, this message the mindset of Christ lived out. The mindset of Christ lived out. Because the question that we'll explore as we consider these examples of of Timothy and Epaphroditus and even of Paul and of the Philippians, is this. What does it look like when the mindset of Christ is lived out? What does it look like when the mindset of Christ is lived out? We're going to have four points this morning, or four specific answers to this question, are that when the mindset of Christ is lived out, it looks like making sacrifices for others as Paul did. It looks like, secondly, a genuine concern for the welfare of others, like Timothy had. It it looks, thirdly, like taking loving risks for the work of Christ, as Epaphroditus did. And fourth, it looks like seeking to give honor, to give honor, rather than to get it, as the Philippians were called to do. So in short, living out the mindset of Christ looks like humble, sacrificial, risk-taking in the work of Christ for the good of others. Living out the mindset of Christ in daily life looks like humble, sacrificial, risk-taking in the work of Christ for the good of others. And so first of all, the mindset of Christ lived out. It looks like making sacrifices for others as Paul did. It looks like making sacrifices for others as Paul did. Now, as we've read these verses just now, a word that shows up repeatedly in this text is the word send. Paul speaks of sending Timothy in verses 19 and 23. He speaks of sending Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 28. And it's helpful for us to remember the context of this letter. It is written by the Apostle Paul as he is in prison. 
likely in Rome. So Paul is not in a good situation, to say the least, humanly speaking. Not only is he confined in prison, but we learned from chapter 1 that even of the Christians in Rome, many were not friendly to Paul at this time. Many had fallen into selfish ambition and were seeking to even afflict him in his imprisonment. They were content to see Paul uh, confined and suffering, and they were trying to use this situation where, where Paul was out of the way so that they could have more of the spotlight, so that they could shine more brightly for their own advancement and their own selfish ambition. But in spite of this, Paul isn't thinking of his own difficulties. He's not wallowing in the mire of self-pity. But rather, he's concerned about this Macedonian church around 800 miles away. His, his uh, supporting church, this church that had supported him in his missionary efforts. And he's thinking, he's, he's planning to send people to them so that they can be encouraged and that his mind will be set at ease by knowing that they're encouraged and that they're doing well. So he's, he's not stressing over his own situation, but he's concerned for them and he's willing to make sacrifices for them by sending even his most valued helpers to them. So we see that he's already sending Epaphroditus in verse 25. He says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. And Epaphroditus, just for a little background on him, towards the end of the letter, uh, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Epaphroditus had come to Paul previously bearing gifts from the Philippian church. Probably uh, they sent him with a sum of money so that he could purchase things once he got to Rome. Um, if you were in prison in these days, in a Roman prison, you couldn't assume that you would have even the basic necessities. If you were incarcerated, you just had better hope that you had friends or family on the outside who were willing to provide you bread and blankets. And Epaphroditus was such a friend. He was a minister of mercy to Paul from the Philippians. But Paul is sending him back. He's sending back this one who had, who had been sent to help him. And we see in verses 26 and in verse 28 the reason. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And verse 27 affirms this, this report that they'd heard was true. He says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, last week, we thought briefly about how, how joy and sorrow can coexist in the life of a Christian. Joy and sorrow, at times they must coexist in the life of a Christian, so I won't go back over that at this time. But it, this verse does raise another question that's worth pausing to answer. And it has to do with something else that we thought about last week as we looked at verses 17 and 18. 
Last week we thought about how it's a joyful thing to be poured out in the service of Christ, even to the point of death, that it's no tragedy to be utterly spent in service to Christ and others. Paul even said he would rejoice if this would be the case with him. So if this is such a, of a worthy thing, why then would it be a mercy for Epaphroditus not to be poured out in the service of Christ? Why would it be a mercy for him to be preserved from death? Preserved from giving his life in the service of the gospel. If just verses before, Paul had said this is something to rejoice over, to have the opportunity to make such a sacrifice. Hasn't Paul himself written earlier in Philippians 1.23 that to depart and be with Christ is far better? It's, it's better to be with Christ, to, to end this life, to, to leave this world of trouble and woe and be with the lover of our souls, to see him face to face. How is it, how can it be then a mercy to live on in this world? Well, John Chrysostom, an early uh, Christian pastor, he anticipates this very question and says, and he says this, quote, I would ask why the same apostle who had who's just said that to depart and be with Christ is far better, says in the next verse that it is more needful for me to abide with you, to stay in this life. He says, for as it was needful for him, so too for this man, for Epaphroditus, who would hereafter depart to God with more exceeding riches and greater boldness. Hereafter that would take place, even if it did not now. But the winning of souls is at an end for those who have once departed thither. So in other words, yes, it would have been a joyful thing for Epaphroditus to have gone on to heaven if that had been God's will. But since God had other plans, it becomes clear that this delay was needed for Paul, for Epaphroditus, for the Philippians. Paul is, is recognizing the hand of God, the providence of God, that God does all things well, that his timing is perfect. God doesn't do anything needlessly. And all of his ways towards his servants are mercy. And so there, he's recognizing from this that there was more work for Epaphroditus to do, more rewards for him to gain in heaven. And so this delay of his departure was indeed a mercy as all God's ways towards his redeemed are merciful. Paul says that he would have had sorrow upon sorrow had Epaphroditus died just then. And so it was mercy to Paul as well, not just to Epaphroditus, that he would have more opportunity to work in, in the Lord's service, but a mercy to Paul, God taking into consideration with compassion and dealing with the emotional state of Paul at that time, recognizing that Paul was so burdened with sorrow that this would have added one more sorrow. And Paul recognizes that was the mercy of God on me not to take this helper from me at this time. Well, back to the reason for Paul's sending Epaphroditus in verse 28. 
He says in verse 28, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So once again, not just is Paul expressing his hope to send Timothy, if the Lord wills, his most valuable helper, but, but he is sending Epaphroditus. Probably Epaphroditus uh, would have traveled back carrying this very letter that we're reading, the letter of Philippians to the Philippian church. So Paul, what we see from all of this, he was willing to sacrificially part with his most valued helpers, his most valued workers for the good of the Philippians and for the good of those workers as he, as he notes, as he's sensitive to Epaphroditus' concern. You know, Epaphroditus being distressed that his home church, his church family was distressed over him. I mean, he couldn't just call him on the phone or do a video chat and let him know he was okay. So Paul is, is thinking of others even as he is in chains. He's thinking of the Philippians. And, th- and we have in this, in this sacrificial sending an echo of the gospel. For in the gospel, God the Father sacrificially sent his own son giving what was most precious to him in order that others might be saved, in order that we might benefit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The resurrected Jesus said to his disciples in in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So I am sending you. So by way of application, church, we ought to be willing to give sacrificially and send sacrificially for the good of others. We must be willing to even lose some of our best in order that gospel work may prosper elsewhere. In our excitement to build a good team here at at Emmanuel Baptist Church, let's not forget the big picture. Paul wasn't concerned with merely surrounding himself with talented and gifted people. He was willing to send them away if they could do more good somewhere else. And we must be willing to do the same if the time comes. Perhaps someday the Lord may give us the opportunity to send missionaries or to plant a church or to help revitalize a church that's maybe on the verge of closing its doors. And if such an opportunity should come, would we be willing to send some of our best teachers and leaders, some of our most dedicated members to go and to help in another work somewhere else, even somewhere far away? Would we be willing to go, even to leave the the sweet fellowship and the, the friendships that you know here in Emmanuel Baptist to go sacrificially in order to help others elsewhere. Church, we we ought to be willing to do these things. We must guard against just just hoarding and and keeping us all together in a way that we, we admire each other's light and forget that there's still a lot of darkness out there in the world. The mindset of Christ looks like making sacrifices for others 
as Paul did, and even sending his most valued workers. Like Timothy, he said, I have no one like him, so therefore I'm sending him. I don't have anybody else like him, I, and so I'm, gonna, I'm planning to send him. But secondly, we see that the mindset of Christ lived out also looks like a genuine concern for the welfare of others, as Timothy had. It looks like a genuine concern for the welfare of others. Paul shares his reason for hoping to send Timothy to the Philippians in verses 20 and 22. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy is contrasted with with some of the others in verse 21. He says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think Paul was literally speaking of every other Christian in the city in which he was in prison. Like every Christian in Rome has just fallen to this bug of selfish ambition. I don't think that's what he means. I mean, he had mentioned some who in chapter 1 were preaching out of goodwill, out of love. He said some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So there were, there were some there who had not fallen prey to this selfish ambition. But he's likely, who he's talking about here is that of those that were available for him to send, he had no one else like Timothy who'd be genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. So this shows us, one thing this points out to us is that selfish ambition, while may, it may be viewed as a virtue by the world, you know, in the world of sports or business, it makes one worthless in the service of Christ. Timothy's proven worth had to do with the fact that he, he didn't have dreams of personal grandeur, that he wasn't seeking great things for himself, but he was instead content to play second fiddle, to have a place of lesser prominence, to serve as a son with a father alongside Paul in the work of the gospel. By the grace of God given to him, Timothy didn't give in to the itch for prominence. He was too busy seeking the interests of Christ. And therefore, he was, he would, Paul knew he would be genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. He wouldn't go there seeming to be concerned for them, but really just using this trip as an opportunity for him to climb a career ladder of sorts. In this, in that Timothy didn't seek his own interests, but those of others and those of his Lord, he exemplified Christ. For Christ came, as he said, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In Timothy's genuine concern for the welfare of others, he exemplified Christ's compassion. It says in Matthew 9, 36, that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus wept with those who wept. He embraced the outcasts. He touched those that no one else would touch that they might be healed. He died for, for those that no one else would have been willing to die for so that they might live. He demonstrated his love for us, his genuine concern for us, in his own literal blood and sweat and tears. 
He was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. And we see that mindset being lived out in this young man, Timothy. But thirdly, we see that the mindset of Christ lived out looks not only like making sacrifices for others as Paul did, it looks not only like giving, uh, having genuine concern for the welfare of others as Timothy had, but it also looks like taking loving risks for the work of Christ as Epaphroditus did. Taking loving risks for the work of Christ as Epaphroditus did. Some people love to take risks just for the sake of taking risks. They, they love the adrenaline, the excitement of a close call with danger or death. And so they go around doing crazy things like skydiving. Um, I know some, some of you wouldn't really call that crazy, but from my perspective, I'm like, I would never do that just for fun. <laughs> But uh, I know some of you have, have had a lot of experience with that, and maybe it's not as crazy as I, as I think it is. But, but we can all think of people that, that really do uh, do very reckless things. Uh, they, they, they're thrill seekers. They're adrenaline junkies. But that's not at all what Epaphroditus has done here. He's, he's taken risks for a good reason, namely the work of Christ. Verse 30 says, he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life. What, just for the sake of risking his life? No, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now the word risk here in verse 30, we're told, is a Greek word that was used for gambling. John MacArthur has playfully called Epaphroditus the loving gambler for this reason. Epaphroditus gambled with his life. But it was not for fame or fortune that he gambled, but in order to serve Christ by serving the imprisoned Paul. It was, as such, it was a, it was a noble risk with less in common with the casino and more in common with a soldier on the front lines who accepts a dangerous mission that may well cost him his life in order to save his fellow soldiers. Or like uh, you think of Corey Ten Boom, and her family, who at great risk to themselves, hid Jewish refugees from the Nazis during the Holocaust. They gambled with their freedom. They gambled with their own safety. And as Corey's sister Betsy would die in a Nazi concentration camp, we see that they gambled with their own lives in order to save others from the Holocaust. We don't know much about Epaphroditus, but we see here that he was the designated messenger from the church in Philippi and that he'd been sent to bring aid to Paul. And the, the journey from Philippi to Rome, where Paul was likely imprisoned, would have been roughly 800 miles. And a trip like that could have taken months in these days before cars and trains and airline travel. What kinds of dangers might Epaphroditus have faced on such a trip, that he could have been said to risk his life in carrying out what remained in the Philippian service to Paul. Perhaps it was da danger from bandits along the road, or pirates at sea as he traveled, or maybe it was the political danger of associating with Paul, this political prisoner of Rome. Perhaps Paul referred to the illness that Epaphroditus caught that, that had brought him to death's door. 
Whatever the dangers were, they were life-threatening, and Epaphroditus was willing to take them on, if only to help others, if only to help Paul. And Paul doesn't call him foolish. He rather says, this was noble. You should honor such men as this. We should honor those who take such risks. Throughout history, the followers of Christ have been those willing to take risks even with their own lives, to gamble even with their own lives for the sake of others. Whether Jim Elliott or his, and his fellow missionaries who died bringing the gospel to the remote Ecuadorian jungle tribes, Corey Ten Boom and her family that I just mentioned, John G. Payton, who brought the gospel to the cannibal tribes in the South Pacific and had many close calls with death, Thomas Vincent, who ministered to the sick and dying in a plague in London during the 1600s, Patrick of Ireland, who during the 5th century went back to the people who'd kidnapped and enslaved him in order to bring them the gospel of Christ. When the city of Carthage on the Mediterranean coast of North Africa suffered a severe plague in AD 252, the pagan inhabitants of Carthage were so frightened by the contagion that they refused to touch the dead bodies or even to bury them. So you can imagine the scene as this, this plague is sweeping through the city, killing thousands, and nobody wants to go out there and bury the dead bodies of those who have fallen by this plague because there is no cure for this. If you get it, it's pretty much over for you. But we read that, that Cyprian, the bishop of the church there, he led the Christians in the arduous task and the dangerous task of ministering to the sick and the dying and burying thousands of corpses. And I, I was reading a letter of Cyprian from this time, and he was saying, you know, as Christians, basically as Christians, we have eternal life. What do we have to fear? Those that don't have eternal life, they have reason to be afraid, but what do we have to fear? Isn't our lot to suffer here and to have joy hereafter? One Bible scholar comments that the spiritual influence of that silent but powerful testimony on the unbelieving and formerly hostile neighbors doubtless was immeasurable. You can imagine some of these Carthaginians uh, some of these pagans who had just been persecuting these Christians severely and perhaps even recognizing the faces of some of those that they had mocked and hurled insults at and, and beaten, coming in when no one else would to care for them as they were dying of the plague. Those who so risked their lives and laid down their lives in the work of Christ shine as lights, pointing others to the one who didn't just risk his life, but gave it. The one who said, greater love has no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. The one of whom it is written in Romans 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Let me say a word to those who might be listening to this who may not be followers of Christ this morning. Let me just tell you, it is super dangerous to be a Christian. It's dangerous. If you, if you sign up to follow Christ, you're signing up for all kinds of hazards and risks. But would you seek to save your life? Jesus said if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's only those willing to lose their lives, including the, the comforts, the security, the money, the careers, the dreams, the friendships. If you're willing to lose all of that, if only to have Christ, Jesus said it is those who will save their lives, who will find life. This is what true faith in Christ looks like. It's a casting yourself upon Christ with reckless abandon, falling on Christ no matter what, living or dying with Christ, no matter the cost, total commitment to Jesus as your Lord, your master, your king, your savior, your everything. As the psalm says, you are my portion. Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. Can you say that this morning, friend? He alone deserves this because he's your God. and He made you. But, but furthermore, we've sinned against him. We've all gone astray and we've treated other things, things that he's made, as though they could give us life and joy and fulfillment that only he can provide. And in this, we've insulted him. We've treated the creation as though it was God instead of the God who made it. And this is idolatry. It's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And God takes this very seriously. Hellfire seriously. All of us, the Bible says, have, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have been guilty of this heart idolatry of treating other things as though they were worthy of the worship that only God deserves. But in spite of our sin, God is full of mercy. And God the Father sent his only begotten Son. And God the Son came willingly to give his life for ours. To live the life that we ought to have lived. And to bear the punishment that we deserved on the cross. So that all who put their faith in him would be saved. And Christ's resurrection from the dead, that was his receipt that, that justice was satisfied on our behalf, that everything we've done, those things that we're too ashamed to speak about, that God sees more clearly than we would be comfortable admitting, that he sees them, and yet, though, though they're so serious, he is willing to forgive. And the blood of Christ was that payment. But if, if you are willing to trust in Christ, if you come to Jesus for eternal life, committing yourself to him, as I said, this is dangerous because in committing yourself to Jesus in this way, you are putting yourself on a collision course with so much that this world holds dear. And the more faithfully you follow him, the more you'll be hated by the world that rejected him and crucified him the first time he came. But friend, though it's dangerous from an earthly perspective, 
It's actually the only thing that will bring you true safety. Not even death can prevail against us if you trust in Christ. We have the promise of the one who rose from the grave on the third day, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades, who will judge the world in righteousness on the day he is appointed. Church, we must be willing to embark on high-risk endeavors in the service to Christ. Like Epaphroditus, if, if this is the kind of example that, that Paul says we should honor people like this, what does that say but that we ought to follow in the footsteps of those who are willing to do this? Perhaps we won't have as much opportunity to risk even our lives, but what other risks might, might we do, might we take? Let's, I mean, just think about our, our finances, for example, our budgets, our church budget. How, how we designate money into various funds, it says a lot about our priorities. What do we prioritize? Well, look at your receipts. Look at what you choose to spend money on. Are we, prior, are we prioritizing financial security and safety? Well, if we are, then we're going to have a big emergency fund just in case anything happens. Are, or are we prioritizing ministry work, even to the point of risk. Well, then our, our missions funds and our ministry training funds and our benevolence funds, they'll be much bigger because those are our priorities. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that emergency funds are a bad thing, but they are dangerous. We ought to be afraid of having large emergency funds, for large emergency funds provide shelter for unholy fears and distrust of God. Large emergency funds provide ample camouflage for trusting in the false security of money. So sustainability is important. Emergency funds aren't bad, but they are dangerous, and we should view them with caution. We should be afraid of them getting too big. It's, it's relevant to note that the New Testament praises as examples of great faith things that the world would view as foolish, as too risky, such as the churches of Macedonia, which would have likely included the Philippian church, who in a severe test of affliction, we read in 2 Corinthians 8, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Severely afflicted, extreme poverty, and overflowing wealth of generosity, giving according to their means, giving beyond their means. And do you know what Paul called that? Not foolish, but rather the grace of God. He says, this is the grace of God in 2 Corinthians 8. The mindset of Christ lived out looks like taking loving risks for the work of Christ and the benefit of others as Epaphroditus did. But fourth and lastly, the mindset of Christ lived out looks like seeking to give honor 
rather than get it, as the Philippians were to do. It looks like seeking to give honor rather than get it. Paul primes the Philippian church for, for this, for his instructions to, to honor Epaphroditus by his own honoring of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at, for example, at verse 25 and note the titles that Paul heaps upon Epaphroditus. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So Paul is, is saying, he's counting this, this messenger, this mailman sent to deliver uh, these gifts to Paul. He's, he's treating him as, as his equal and more. He's, he's sending him as he would send his own brother, his own co-laborer, his fellow soldier. He's, he's saying, like, this, treat this guy as you would treat a, a veteran who served alongside me in the trenches in our spiritual warfare. In verses 29 and 30, he says, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now recall that Philippi was a Roman colony, and much of its populations would have, uh, would have been veterans of the Roman military. One Bible call, uh, scholar comments that with the language of fellow soldier in mind, Epaphroditus, in these instructions to welcome him back as Paul's fellow soldier, he's to be welcomed as a returning war hero, a fellow soldier of Paul who is to be afforded the full honors on his return. This would be understood well by ex-Roman soldiers used to returning home from wars in the imperial army who, who were now settled in Philippi and converted to Christ. And so imagine like the, kind of a victory parade. He's saying that, hey, honor Epaphroditus. When he comes back, you know, pull out all the stops. Honor this man. Honoring others, you know, it may be something that we do less and less in our, in our nation, in our republic, especially in this day and age where equality is so emphasized. But church, honoring others, that's not just for honor-shame cultures. It's a biblical command for Christians. Romans 12 commands us to outdo one another in showing honor. It's a good thing to recognize the grace of God in others and with reverence and awe, give thanks to God and encourage that person in whom you see it. And what, and what a guard this is against selfish ambition. If we're so busy looking around at our fellow believers and recognizing God's grace in them and seeking to honor them, we have less time to be disgruntled at the fact that we're not being recognized. So rather than seeking to gain honor from our fellow Christians, we should be busy seeking to give honor to our fellow Christians, even to outdo them in showing honor. May we not be bothered when others don't recognize us, but rather may we be bothered when others aren't recognized and honored. The mindset of Christ lived out looks like seeking to give honor rather than get it. And this is what it means to, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Well, in closing, in Philippians 2.3, um, in closing, what does it look like when the mindset of Christ is lived out? It looks like making sacrifices for others as Paul did. 
It looks like a genuine concern for others as Timothy had. It looks like taking loving risks for others as Epaphroditus did. And it looks like seeking to give honor rather than get it as Paul did and as the Philippians were to do. So in short, living out the mindset of Christ looks like humble, sacrificial, giving, uh, and risk-taking in the work of Christ for the good of others. Humble, sacrificial, risk-taking in the work of Christ for the good of others. But friends, just remember, it's not by living out this mindset that we are saved. This is rather the work of God in those who have been saved. This isn't how we earn God's favor. Only Christ did this perfectly. Only he can earn the Father's favor for us and satisfy the justice that we have broken. But as those who have been saved, as those who have been pardoned, as those who have been forgiven, it is now our joy with the same Holy Spirit that empowered Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus to serve Christ and others as they did, to now serve others and serve Christ in that same power by that same Holy Spirit who worked within them until he brings his work to completion at the day of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the grace that we see not only in our Savior towards us and for us, giving his very life for our redemption, but also in the reflections of our Savior in the lives of his followers. Lord, help us to so reflect the glory and the goodness and the love of our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.